0: I feel like for me, the focal point of this conversation is to be able to just talk about brown voices and to talk about how we can uplift them. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This
1: is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Tysha Tyler. Trot Call Quest. Fred Armiston. Fritz Paul. Javier you ever met Mine. Frankie Cosmos. Mine Lotus. Hi,
0: we're Chaim, and you're listening
2: to the Talk House Podcast.
1: What's up? This is Ali Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House podcast. We have an amazing show for you this week. Sasami and Black Belt Eagle Scout in conversation with a very special guest to help me intro in Leticia Tamco, aka Vagabond. Now, this week's episode is a talk about women of color in music. It's a talk about space. It's a talk about safety. And it's a talk about changing behaviors, This episode came up due to a Twitter situation, situation is uh, a nice word for it, that came up from Black Belt Eagle Scouts' conversation with Elsa Chang on the NPR show, All Things Considered. KP discussed her feeling uncomfortable with white people at her shows as her music is intended for black indigenous people of color. She said, quote, it's for people of color, for indigenous people, for queer people, and white men are so fragile when I say stuff like that. It's because of white privilege, and they don't often get told that. End quote." Now, it should be noted that KP was not advocating for banning white men from her shows, right? She's saying that there should be more room at each performance for the folks she sees as her own community. Of course, fragile white men took to Twitter immediately upon the show's release calling kp racist and hating on all things considered for having had her on i saw vagabond tweet some support for this i fell down the rabbit hole and i saw sasami pretty much mma fighting these fools on twitter and <laughs> i thought to myself i want to offer the platform of the talkhouse podcast to sasami to kp For an extended unmoderated conversation about these issues to help me introduce today's show vagabond now leticia has been on the talk house podcast twice before once with julie byrne and once with frankie cosmo's greta klein where the issue of space in indie rock actually came up as well the cameroonian born new york and la based singer songwriter producer vagabond is one of my absolute favorite artists Leticia Tamko, welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. Thank you. Great to hear your voice. Where are you joining us from?
3: Um, I'm quarantined in Los Angeles
1: right now. Okay. Okay. So no trips to New York for the time being. No, no, that's on pause. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things on pause right now. Although you have been staying somewhat busy, you just performed as part of the huge Black Power concert that the Form Fest folks put on recently. How did that go?
3: It was great. I mean, it's so great to get together for a purpose that feels really good. And, you know, 100% of the proceeds went to organizations that benefit trans people, such as the Trans Law Center, um, the Crenshaw Daily Mart, this organization called Black Men Build, amongst others. So it was just cool to kind of put our heads together and our skills together to raise some money. And it went on from 5 p.m. to midnight and. You know, artists from Vagabond to like Miguel and Neo, And, you know, it was just, it was amazing to to play music again. Honestly, it's been a while for me. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, and you had this situation that I just want to talk about briefly where you put out this album that was fucking incredible. This was your sophomore record, self-titled Vagabond and huge critical reception, huge fan reception, you have sold out tours around the world and then boom, the pandemic hits and what? I mean, you're stuck in LA right now and, and unable to tour.
3: Yeah.
1: I just want to be one voice putting some juice behind this record because I was privileged to hear some of the earliest tracks in, in their inception mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't believe how cool the new direction was. I was a huge fan of your first record, obviously, but it was so cool to see this whole other side of your artistry. Thank and you. Uh, I just want to be... One person saying, I am going to fucking be at your show the second I'm able to. Are, are you hoping to get back on the road when things are safe?
3: I hope so. I mean, I feel like this record, you know, didn't have as much of a life as it could have had if, you know, we weren't dealing with a global pandemic. So I hope that there's an opportunity to give it the tour that it deserves and play it live. And, and yeah, I hope that there's still a want for that when when it feels appropriate. I just want people to listen to it and to yeah. to like engage with people in a live setting with it as well.
1: There will be, man. So many people I talk to every day cannot wait to get back to shows. Yeah. And an album that came out even uh, months ago still is going to be so fresh to finally get to see live. So yeah. I can't wait for that, man. Me too. Now, speaking of the the live shows, a lot of what today's talk is about is safety and community in indie rock and beyond live spaces. Yeah. I feel like we're in this amazing time of redefining a lot of things in America. One of those is what those spaces that we're going to return to look like. And Leticia, I know you've thought a lot about community over the years.
3: Yeah. I mean, the conversation surrounding this interview that, KP did, you know, the comments underneath the writer's like post of this made me so, so sad, honestly. Mm -hmm. I, it was just this weird revelation that the majority of the people who were commenting felt offended by this. And I think I was, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was kind of surprised by how overwhelmingly people felt like, um, K.P. should not have said that. And, you know, I have my own personal experience where when I was putting out my first record, Infinite Worlds, in 2017, Pitchfork did a rising piece on me that the writer Matthew Schnipper wrote. And in it, you know, I I don't remember the question that he asked me, but my answer was like, I'm doing this for, for weird black girls. And I never thought that saying that would offend anybody. Of course. Why would it? Exactly. The headline is Vagabond is an indie rock game changer. And I guess then Pitchfork readers read the interview and saw that I said that it's for weird black girls and were like outraged, you know? Obviously, it was white men who were outraged that like, well, if it's not for us, then we're not listening and we're not supporting and like, how can you exclude us? And it's like, well, actually you're implied in everything. Like you, You, (laughs) I actually don't need to say that this is for weird black girls and for white people. I don't Mm -hmm. need to say that. You don't see a lot of weird black girls playing rock music. It's just the truth. And so me having a platform such as a which Rising piece or having any platform that's what I felt like I represent Cameroon that's where I'm from and I represent weird black girls because that's what I am it it makes no sense that that would offend somebody so naturally when I saw the comments underneath the share of KP's interview on NPR I was like surprised that no advancements had been made in that department from when I experienced it a year or two earlier
1: Can we label these people all listeners matter? (laughs) Exactly.
3: (laughs) It's like you're sharing it with everybody. You understand that everybody's going to listen to it. Some things are just implied and don't need to take up space in a conversation, in a platform. They just, the the fact that we're even, the fact that we're even saying like, hey, don't worry, we mean you too, but like you just, (laughs) it's just so sad. The word is sad.
1: (laughs) It is. It is. And I, I feel like KP and Sasami in this talk really get into how ridiculous some of those beliefs can be, but but maybe more importantly, why they're ridiculous, right? Like, like just right. like you're doing here. Um, and, and, and I really hoped, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the indie rock scene here at the Talk House podcast. I'd say that is, you know, probably the majority of our listenership. I think we all need to listen right now and hear what women, people of color are saying as we continue to move forward in changing what things are going to look like. I include myself in that, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and they really get into it here. Um, now, now, listeners, just in case you're not familiar, Black Belt Eagle Scout is the moniker of Catherine Paul, or as we said, KP, as she's known as. She is a self-described radical indigenous queer feminist who grew up on the Swinomish Indian Reservation in Northwest Washington State, She's part Swinomish and part Inupiaq. That's a native community in Alaska. She's now based in Portland. The way KP has brought her political and social beliefs into her music career is very powerful. When she tours, she's been known to list the cities she's playing in, not by the names that white people have given them, but by the names the natives of those areas called them and in many cases still call them last year saw the release of her sophomore lp titled at the party with my brown friends in 2017 she released her debut album mother of my children from that record check out soft stud I fucking love Black Belt Eagle Scout, man. Yes. Leticia, are you a fan?
3: Yes, I am. I love KP and I love their music.
1: So good. Um, Now, I know that you are a fan and a friend and a collaborator of Sasami Ashworth, who goes by Sasami. She made her name playing synth in the band Cherry Glazer, who she worked with for a few years starting back in 2015. In 2018, Sasami went solo, signing to the great indie label Domino, and released the fantastic, shoegaze-centric, eponymously titled debut LP, Sasami. She's Korean-American and came up in LA, which she still calls home. Am I correct in understanding that you had actually an LA social distance hang recently?
3: Yeah, yeah. Sasami and I are both very strict about our quarantine, but she just celebrated birthday and she's like, the number one friend in my life. And so, you know, we did a little socially distanced celebration of her. We just serenaded her. Oh. with a happy birthday, just real
1: low-key. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Let's check out some of her most recent music. This is a single called "Mess.")
2: Look in-
3: song I love this song so, so much rad. I was actually in the studio while she was recording this and Are you I, serious? Yeah and I just oh, I like it. was
1: losing I was like I love rock music <laughs>
3: I was like, I want to make a rock record again.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah. Okay, well, we'll see what's next for Vagabond then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome.
3: A lot of Sasami's new music is really heavy and the stuff she's working on for her next record is just so incredible. And mess is just like a tiny, tiny taste of like how heavy she's
1: going with it. And I, lo- I can't wait. Inside scoop.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, in this talk, KP and Sasami get into... A lot of powerful topics, right? They talk about issues of safety and space in DIY touring. They talk about actionable things that bands and fans can do right now.
3: You know, when we talk about what other bands can do and what other people can do, land acknowledgement is something that I, as a person who is not Indigenous, to this land hasn't really thought about. And that's why it's so important to listen. You know, that's why it's so Mm -hmm. important to make sure that we're listening to the people who occupy those spaces, whether it's Black people, whether it's Indigenous people, other people of color, marginalized people, queer people, listening to what they have to say can just open your eyes to things that you may not have thought of. And I think it's important for other bands and fans of music to be humble enough to receive that they may not know everything and they may not have thought of something that is actually super important to an artist's ethos. And if you go to a show, know that that artist on the stage wants to share their music with you. Know that that's implied by them showing up and deciding to be vulnerable with you and just listen to what they need and, you know, we have artists like No Name who has talked about wanting to stop playing shows because there are white kids at her shows saying the mm-hmm. N-word and mm-hmm. there are white kids at Solange's shows saying the N-word. And we just have to understand that loving music does not mean that there are no boundaries around that. And listening and being humble enough to know that other people may know something that you don't is crucial to what you can do as a
1: music fan
3: and as a band.
1: I listened to this talk a number of times as I was editing it, but I, I listened just before recording with you today, Leticia, again. And one thing I, I just wanted to share is like, I get a lot of messages from really famous artists that enjoy the Talk House podcast. And I super appreciate that, um, that you guys are listening. And, and I just want to say, share this. Mm-hmm. When you hear this episode, share this with other bands that, that are at your level and that are smaller than you and that are bigger than you. And this is an opportunity we all have to listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Leticia Tamko, a.k.a. Vagabond, thank you so, so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast to help introduce this episode.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Should we roll the tape? Let's do it.
2: The reason why it was brought up that we should maybe have a discussion was the whole scenario with your NPR piece about representing marginalized voices and the fact that Twitter kind of exploded not exploded i'm being dramatic but you know people on twitter had something to say basically to defend white male people at shows <laughs> that can't make space i know for me and for other women of color and other artists sometimes it feels vulnerable or foolish to talk about really important things with press people i know that i've talked about this with a lot of other artists that sometimes you open up and then it gets relayed in a way that, I don't know, doesn't represent exactly what you're trying to say. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot easier to just talk to your peers than it is to talk to huge press people, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Because when you're talking to your peers or when you're talking to like people at a show, it's like the audience that like actually wants to be there for you and wants to be a part of what you're doing. And so for me, like... Uh, having this band, Black Belt Eagle Scout, and talking a lot about indigenous issues, that's something very normal for me. I do it on a daily basis with my family, with my friends, and pretty much just with my community. But when you get to a point where you're talking to other outlets where it reaches like a huge audience and like that invites other people to the conversation that, you know, wouldn't normally be a part of the conversation. Right. And so I think as an artist, like it's it's something that you have to be okay with in, in a in a way because you know, you agree to talk to somebody and
2: so Right.
0: Yeah. So it's it's an interesting dynamic space, I think, um, to be within.
2: Yeah. And sometimes when you're doing an interview, I mean in a podcast, like the reason why I also thought a podcast discussion about this topic would be interesting is because Sometimes in an interview, when they're just quoting you, some nuance is missing. You know, they're just kind of selecting certain quotes. And in an interview discussion like this, we can we can fill in all the all the blanks about what we were thinking, not just certain quotes. You know?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, obviously, I think it's a a big topic for this particular discussion, is just space in general and what that looks like. For people of color, for women of color, for queer people, for queer people of color. And I think, you know, being a woman of color and being in the indie rock scene, like, it's definitely something that I feel like I think about all the time just because it's my life. And I think perhaps you you think about that too, And how we can, I guess, shift or change a culture. That's something that I remember you said at one point, what I thought was really interesting. I was like, oh yeah, we're trying to like, you know, create this culture within the art that we have, within the music that we have. And I was really struck by that. And so... I think what is it about creating a culture for people of color or for just, you know, for um, this music scene? What
2: What is it about that that um, inspires you? I'm curious. I think because, I mean, we live in cities and we're in this music community. It's a little bit of a bubble situation where we just, we're talking about these cultural issues all the time, like it's completely normal. And then sometimes when it gets... But into a more global context, like an NPR interview or something, we realize that people aren't talking about it in the way that we're talking about it, or it's not as normalized. Like, for example, the reason I think why Elia had maybe approached me to talk about it also was because around the same time that your NPR piece hit, I was on tour in Europe. And I have this, you know, being like, a woman of color, and just in general, a woman musician. I I do get a lot of creepy dudes that will DM me inappropriate photos or, you know, messages and weird stuff like that. And and it, especially at my level, where I'm a pretty small band, I don't have security, and the venues don't have metal detectors, and you know, it's pretty. It's still pretty DIY at this level. So for me, part of the reason why. I often will shout out women to the front, people of color to the front, queers to the front, is because I sometimes will get like creepy older or not older, but creepy white dudes that come to the front that... Maybe I even recognize from weird DMs or just that come to a lot of my shows and they stand in the front and they bring their camera or their camera phone and they just film like right in my face. And it's really invasive and distracting and makes me really uncomfortable. So sometimes even beyond the social necessity to create space, I sometimes request that space out of protection for myself, you know, and to make myself comfortable at my show. So it was really shocking at one of my shows when a white man in the crowd got really angry and, and was, you know, yelling profanities at me on stage for requesting the space and basically just taking it really personally. When it wasn't personal, it was actually because there was two like six-year-old dudes that kind of follow me to a lot of shows in the UK and they were standing at the front and they were filming and it was making me uncomfortable, you know, but this other guy took Mm -hmm. it really personally. Anyways, and then there was a Twitter situation too, where people, most of the people at the show were totally fine moving back. And it was, you know, there's probably like 60 or 70 white dudes that scooted back and it was fine. (laughs) But like, there were a couple of people that took to Twitter and, you know, called me out for my reverse racism or whatever. So I kind of had a similar situation too, where I was creating space and not naively, but just out of my comfort with the topic, thought that it was a pretty reasonable request and was shocked to find that it was not reasonable to some people, that they were very offended by me requesting that space. So that's kind of just some context of why it was important to talk about it with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, like to me, that is a a that's definitely a reasonable request. And I think, you know, having boundaries as a musician is important and having boundaries as a woman is important and having boundaries as a woman of color is important. And I think, you know, with the way that patriarchy is, is set up, people don't think it's important, but we do. Right talking to you right now, like we're, we're friends. We talk like, um, not on podcasts. We talk pretty regularly. (laughs) So (laughs) having this conversation is funny in a way, just because I feel like we, we talk like this in person and we talk like this on via text message or via Instagram.
2: Right. And that's why I think it's interesting to talk about it in this context because it's so normal to us, but we forget that Like there's people out there that like maybe didn't realize that. I mean, I honestly think that carving space in the indie rock or the music scene or the world for like people of color, femmes and queers and marginalized people is important. But maybe people hadn't even considered that that space is like for our own protection and our own comfort at our own shows. You know, like Mm -hmm. it sucks that the honest is always on the marginalized people to explain why. We are requiring space and why we are requiring revolution and change. But, you know, here we are. We have to talk about it because white men need us too, I guess, because they get angry on Twitter.
0: I mean, I feel like also
2: there's there's an element
0: of, like, why aren't other people talking about it? Because I definitely hear on social media and I definitely, like, see a lot of people saying, like, validly saying, like, you know, people of color, when they talk about this stuff, it's like, it's this emotional labor that happens. And, right. you know, we're the first ones that are always going to like talk about it. And I think that, you know, a lot of non-people of color, like want to talk about it, but they mm-hmm. just don't know how. And there is that sense of, of, you know, having a little bit of ignorance around
2: the situation. Right. I also don't think that there's always bad will with like men or, White people wanting to be the front. I don't I think that it is out of a genuine love of the music and genuine support of the artist. But I do think that intention isn't the only aspect of action and behavior. Like you also have to think outside of yourself. It's not always just what you want. It's like maybe thinking more about like what the artist would want. And that's the whole point of creating the culture around it, because it's not so black and white, you know, it's not like I paid for a ticket and I'm a fan and I know all the lyrics, so I deserve to be at the front. It's not that black and white, you know. Hmm. I think the reason why the person yelled up to me on the stage that they were upset that I was requesting for them to scoot back a foot or two was because they were a fan, you know, because they liked the music and they brought their friends and they got upset about it. But I think that they could have avoided being upset about it if they understood the culture of why I was requesting that space, you know? Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. guess it's just shocking because I feel like I'm pretty open about it, but, but yeah, maybe not enough. Yeah. I don't remember exactly the whole context of your NPR interview, but was it just talking about themes from your record or was it specifically talking about live shows?
0: Oh, I think that, you know, I've been pretty vocal on Instagram. Instagram is the, the social media platform that I use the most. I don't really use Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter is where I'll like post, you know, updates about tour and stuff. But to like get to know me in like a somewhat personal level, Instagram is where I use my voice in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was going on this tour with Julia Jacqueline and opening up and it's pretty much like, you know, her audience that's there. And we were on the East coast and, you know, sometimes at those shows, like there would be white men or just men in general that would, you know, come up to me and say, Hey, that was a great show, but like would come up to me and unconsensually like touch my shoulder or like be in this space where for me, like coming from a background of like, I'm an indigenous woman, like there's this epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women that i have to think about all the time like sometimes that scares me and so for that interview that i did like i was just coming from a place where i was like well these are these boundaries that like i sometimes have based on safety yeah. and based on you know what i need as as a musician at shows and but also knowing at the same time that you know like I'm not the headliner of this tour. Like I'm right. a support band. And so it's just very like very nuanced situation, I think, which at the time, like when when that question came up, I was just like, uh, <laughs> I needed to think a little bit more. I feel like sometimes when I talk, I have to really think about what I want to say um, because I want to say something that's impactful. Yeah. And I think that I have the ability to do that. But sometimes when you're doing an interview, it just, you get caught off guard and you're like, wait, um, for me, like in the headline shows that I do, I definitely notice when people are there to see me, to see mm-hmm. the band and, you know, cause that's what is being advertised. That's what be, is being marketed as like, come see Black Bell Eagle Scout. Right. And um, within those shows, like pretty much everybody is, is super respectful. And I think, you know, people coming to my shows, they understand where I'm coming from and they understand, you know, what I'm what I'm speaking about. And I'm speaking about indigenous issues and I'm speaking about my identity. But when it comes to playing audiences where they don't necessarily know me or, you know, it's more of like a mixed bag of an audience, sometimes there will be people who are, you know, ignorant. who this is their, you know, introduction to a native person, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily hear a native woman talking about these things because that's just not the kind of community that that they're in. And so, you know, like I'm aware that that that's the case and and it's just a, a choice that I make. It's this choice that I make of, okay, I'm gonna accept this tour and I know that I'm gonna be in front of this audience that you know, there's marketing that goes into a tour. So, yeah, I'm announced on the on the tour, but maybe they're not as familiar with me. So it is definitely a choice that I make for my band, for my art, and, you know, as a job, I guess.
2: Yeah, and honestly, like, hearing you say that part of the reason why you were talking about white men at shows was because of the same issue with, like, personal space, it just kind of, like, reminds me, like, I mean... We want to change the culture and create this space, but like really it is very fundamental. Like I have had the same thing happen at shows too. Like for example, I was opening for the breeders once, which is a really similar situation. Like it's a crowd that's not necessarily there to see me. And someone was heckling me from the stage and I like kind of put them in their place, whatever, a little bit. Not in like a rude way, but just in a, in a, in a Sasami way, (laughs) And he came he was like a pretty big white dude. He came to the merch table and I thought he was coming to apologize, but he was actually there to get an apology from me, which I wasn't down to give him and he threw all of my merch on the ground and got mm. really violent and that was really scary. And even recently I played a show at Pappy and Harriet's in this venue in, in Pioneer Town and like people will come and buy a ticket and get food and drinks at the bar, even if they don't know who I am. And there was this kind of cowboyish dude who came to the show and didn't know who I was. And he tried to, he was trying to mansplain and I was like, okay, leave me alone. And then he like grabbed my shoulder to get my attention. And I like told him not to, and he like started cursing at me and got like really violent. So this this kind of does remind me that like, the reason why creating the space is important is symbolic, it's cultural. It's also super fundamental. It's super about just basic safety, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think people don't realize that like PC culture, blah, 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 is like fundamentally about safety. (laughs) And diversity and representation and all those things are important, but changing the culture, it's rooted in safety. Yeah, the creating space aspect of it.
0: Yeah, and I also like... It's just the two of us talking right now. And I feel like we have very specific, I guess, experiences with this. Like as an indigenous person, like I'm, I'm tan. I'm not like the darkest indigenous person that is out there. And so my experience is very different from somebody who has darker skin than I do. Right, Black indigenous people, black people. And so I think having this experience, like within safety, like there are people who need to feel more safe than me, I feel
2: like. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I I think personally, I get really caught up in the capitalistic aspect of diversity and representation. It's something that I talk about and think about a lot in terms of people of color and queer people and femmes and non-binary people being on festival lineups and playing shows and having representation, I think about it a lot from a capitalistic standpoint, you know, like I, I personally think it's really important that marginalized people get paid and are given resources. And I, and I think about that a lot and I think I do, I do forget about the safety aspect of it, but that is a really important part of it, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely. Sometimes I think about the universal aspect of all this stuff that we're doing. And I think about how other people can be accommodating or can be, you know, open and actionable to creating spaces. And one of those things that comes up in that way has to do with land acknowledgements Mm -hmm. for indigenous people. And I've been seeing a a lot more of my music peers doing that. I mean, when I say a lot, I probably like several, <laughs> <laughs> several of my music peers <laughs> in, in a, in a huge array. But to me, that's like progress mm-hmm. because before I feel like land acknowledgements, um, people just didn't necessarily do them or they were done in like more of like a, of like a governmental way mm-hmm. and not necessarily in like a music and concert way. But also on the other hand, there's like Buffy St. Marie who like incorporates that into her music and she's been playing music since the 60s. Mm-hmm. So this is just my opinion. This is my personal opinion. It's not like to to talk like in a huge general
2: way. No, it's super important. I mean, there's so many aspects of making space and part of that is acknowledging the space. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask um, you because... I've noticed, and we've talked about this a lot, mm-hmm. is just doing land acknowledgements and, and working, especially with Aaron from Seeding Sovereignty.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's awesome. And I think more people should should be doing that. I think that land acknowledgements are a very simple, easy way to, to start the conversation of talking about indigenous land, of, of creating space for land defenders, of you know, creating this like history in the contemporary time where people can be like, okay, we are actively talking about indigenous people because indigenous people have futures. You know, we are people who are doing stuff today. And I, and that, that also comes from a place of like people not realizing that there are indigenous people in the world. Right. And I think that, you know, there are still some people that are like that, but I think that that's shifting. And I think especially with like the indigenous congresswoman, Deb Holland and Sharice Davids, like that sort of stuff is, is making its way into like more popular culture. Right. But specifically like with you and I guess potentially inspiring other people. Like what is it about land acknowledgements for you in particular that like make it important to do?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I and we are so lucky that seeding sovereignty and groups like that exist because I have a desire to acknowledge the land and engage with the ancestral historical community of all the places where I tour. But I was kind of like worried when I was first talking to Aaron, I was like, worried about asking them to do work because part of the land acknowledgement is of course acknowledging the traditional name of the land but also inviting someone from the community to give a blessing or some sort of community presentation. So I felt a little bad asking Aaron to connect me or to organize some sort of presentation but that's what they do. That's literally what Seeding Sovereignty does and I think what's so special about Erin and that organization offering to connect touring artists with local indigenous people is that a lot of times the communities do want to participate in the shows. They do want to bless the show. They do want to be a part of the event. It's two ways. I think there are indigenous people that would love to participate. And I think that that's what's so cool about Seeding Sovereignty is that they connect events I think they also do this for like educational events and any sort of event in different communities that's on indigenous land. But they'll connect you with like local indigenous people. And that's like what they do. Do you know what I'm saying? I just like, Mm -hmm. I think the fact that there's organizations and communities that actively will help facilitate that kind of connection is really priceless and it's really like a natural thing. So, and yeah, it's just nice to have an open line of communication with someone who is happy to facilitate those kind of community interactions.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, Having this conversation and hopefully people will hear that, like hopefully that will inspire people to to reach out. There are people out there that want to, to help acknowledge the land and pay
2: respects to the indigenous people. And like being a very privileged and lighter skinned person myself, like I actually like in some ways I understand, like not to make it an excuse for it, but I understand white men's feeling like unsure of what to do in in the space of 2020 you know because ultimately at the end of the day the more privileged you are the more work you need to do yes it's going to feel like work yes it's going to be awkward yes you're going to be in a situation where you have to be extra sensitive to how other people feel. But that is part of the community that we're trying to create. And that's part of the future that we're trying to create, where people who are privileged have to do extra work to balance out how imbalanced the society is right now. You know, and for me, trying to work with Seeding Sovereignty is me trying to be open and sensitive to like what I can do because I'm not an indigenous person. And what Aaron helps me with is like, I want to know, like, how can I open my show? How can I open my event to be something that can be collaborative with the indigenous community? You know, it's about asking questions, being a privileged person that wants to be better. doesn't mean that you know the answers. It just means that you're willing to ask questions and willing to change behavior and willing to be sensitive, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just think that part of growth is like awkwardness and, making mistakes and learning and growing. And like and I am always wanting that, and I invite people that come to my shows to be willing to grow and change and be awkward and make mistakes. It's fine. No one's supposed to be perfect, but there needs to be some willingness to change and to grow and to make space.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Thanks for saying that.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, part of growth and change is breaking. You have to break habits. You have to break systems that, I mean, they're already broken, but, you know, break them down further so that we can really analyze what isn't working and who is not being uplifted and how we can change the systems. And I've been talking about this lately a lot because, you know, I brought Mandy Harris-Williams, who's a critical theorist, out on tour recently because... The indie rock world or the rock world or whatever is like the least punk place. There is this kind of like really cookie cutter, like you go on tour, you bring this like market adjacent opening band and people come they like kind of talk through the opener and they like get a tequila soda, they watch your show, they buy your merch and they like Instagram it, whatever. There's this kind of like cookie cutter-ness to the rock world. And I've just been thinking a lot lately about how it can be more of an educational space. So bringing Mandy on tour was really interesting. It was like partially a DJ set of Black femme musicians and then also partially sound collage with some critical theorist spoken word and then her own lecture on top of it. Yeah, I don't know. Just kind of thinking about how we can change the indie rock space and evolve it and not let it get stuck in the same kind of parallel way that I guess the world and America is trying to enact some sort of revolution. I think the indie rock world needs a little revolution too.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talk about that. Cause I feel like the majority of the interviews that I do, like people will ask me like about indie rock and like, they'll, they'll say like, well, where do you see yourself in indie rock? It's like, you know, such like a white male space and you know, I've, I feel like I've said so many different things, but that question is still stuck in my head. I'm just like, wait, where do I see myself? Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, having friendship with you and like talking about issues that are important to the both of us, it makes me realize that we can create our own space. We can shift things, you know, we can um, make it our own little home, our own like redesign of, of of this space, and and not have it be called like, you know, white indie rock space or like white male indie rock space. Like we have a say in in how we want this culture to, I guess, interact and and to mm-hmm. grow. And so I've just been thinking about it a lot in in those ways um, because I think that sometimes that question gets portrayed to me in a way that's like well you're indigenous like you know you don't necessarily fit in here because of the history of it so how do you see yourself fitting in yeah <laughs> and and then i and then i i mean like honestly like i I'll just talk about all of these women of color i'm like well Right now, like, I, I see all of these women of color, like, in indie rock music. And, like, why does it have to be one way? Why can't it be expansive? Right. You know, why can't it be so many voices? And I think that people will see that. Like, I've definitely seen it, especially, I think, with Asian women and with Mitsuki, with Japanese Breakfast, with JSON, Like, having representation within those cultures and those communities, like, I've noticed that. And I have felt inspired by it. And I think a lot of people have as well. And with you too.
2: Definitely. There's so many women of color that exist in the indie rock space. Like, you know, I'm very, really good friends with Vagabond, who is a black woman musician. I mean, I wouldn't pin her as an indie rock musician, though she does kind of get put in that category. But there is definitely this shift in representation in the scene. And but for me personally, I just think that like, I mean again like I I consider myself like a in the in the scope of things a pretty like privileged light-skinned person and like I don't feel pers- I'm just talking from my own perspective I don't really feel like I've I'm like inventing anything new like for me music is the language that I feel the most fluent in and the most comfortable in and I think it's really easy for musicians and artists to feel like like what they're doing is good enough and they don't have to be good beyond just being an artist. But I think that's total BS. And I actually think the music community is a really powerful community that can open up discussion to broader themes besides just art and just music, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I think that having the community of women of color in the indie rock scene. I mean, it should have been there the whole time, but I think what's really powerful about it is that it makes us feel more comfortable to just be ourselves and not have to like prove anything. That's like kind of the most important thing about it, you know? Yeah. I think that because people who are marginalized are typically... Very engaged and very, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Like switched on people, like because out of survival, probably. I think that we end up talking about um, social change and social justice and all of these themes just because it's because we're good people and we care about it. But I think the most important thing about the space is that the marginalized people in the space just have the freedom to just make what they want to make and talk about what they want to talk, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I definitely see that.
0: There was one instance when I was on tour, recently when somebody, after we played a show, um, it was an Indigenous person and they were like, this is the first time I've ever seen an Indigenous woman on stage. Like, now I know what it looks like, you know? Like, now I know that I can be on stage and play guitar I know I know what it looks like that you know to me is just so important like that normalization I guess definitely and also representation too like I think that they go side by side and I don't know I just I just loved what you said (laughs)
2: Yeah, and I think it's a really powerful time because a lot of the things that people of color and women in the music and art scene, like the things that people are standing up for and talking about, they've always been thinking and and it's always been on the mind of those marginalized communities. But I think having the representation creates a space where people feel comfortable in the mainstream to talk about these things. And that's kind of why... You know, even though it still feels kind of nerve-wracking to talk about these topics in a really public space like TalkHouse or NPR or something, because when you make yourself vulnerable, you're open to people's criticism and anger. But I do think it is important to just kind of fearlessly talk about these topics, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in the hope that it just becomes normal. Like, you know, it, it definitely, at least in my circle... Diversity is more normalized in the sense that when you see a band that doesn't have any marginalized people, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you're kind of like, wow, really? You couldn't like hire one woman in your crew? <laughs> There's like kind mm-hmm. of, the, it's, it's, I definitely feel a shift in, in the culture in some ways, but I, I do think it could, it could get a lot stronger and deeper.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like I, I used to work at a music venue, And I would, you know, intentionally, like, you know, make sure to have bands that have women and have people of color and have queer people just so that there's more representation. And I think, you know, having uh, entities like She Shreds Magazine has just been amazing in creating
2: that space and filling that gap. Like, amplifying marginalized voices, I feel like, is something that's really important. And it's important for, like, bigger bands, too. Like, I would love for this discussion to also be a challenge for bigger, less marginalized acts to diversify their crews, to bring more marginalized voices to open for you on tour. I I think Mm -hmm. that it would be great for these standards to be normalized on like a much bigger scale. Like we're doing the best that we can on a very like indie, still pretty DIY level. But I'd love to see this change like on a much bigger level.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, I agree.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So if you're listening
0: out there. I know, right? Yeah. I was just like talking on social media yesterday about Portugal, the man and how they do land acknowledgements and they're a big band. Right. And I think seeing that as like a smaller indie musician and knowing that there are other bands out there that are just as big as Portugal, the man, if not bigger, that's like a thing that is accessible that can happen. And so I hope it does. I Definitely. really do.
2: Definitely. We should we gotta we gotta write down some notes and make sure these bigger bands are taking note, <laughs> you know, of what we small indie people are doing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I was doing this thing, I did I did a tour opening for Snail Mill, which, you know, Snail Mill's not a huge band, but they're definitely a bigger band than I am. And I was selling earplugs at the merch table to raise money for Raices, which is like an organization that raises money to help fund legal services for immigrant families that are split up at the borders. And I made like so much money just selling earplugs. And I'm I'm a pretty small band and I was opening for a band that's not that big, but I'm like, if giant, like if Billie Eilish was selling earplugs to raise money for like Wet'suwet'en or something, I just, you know, just like little things. I wish that if the music world is kind of echoing the positive change in the social world, Like, even Bernie Sanders' campaign, for example, like, is so crowdfunded, right? Like, it's not funded by giant billionaires. Mm -hmm. I feel like the music industry has so much space to do those kind of things, too. Mm -hmm. Where it's, like, people at shows, artists, like, we can do things without the giant corporations that are, like, promoting the shows or whatever. Like, I think we forget when we're in those show spaces that we're all, like, people with brains and resources and energy. And I just, I, I hope that we can tap into, like, the power... That people in the music world, we can do important things together, you know, besides just like drinking tequila and buying merch. I just Mm -hmm. think that the space is more powerful than that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think so, too. Also, just with social media, too, like people have such a huge platform. They could be talking about important issues in that way, too. But, you know, I also understand, though, like if you are being super political, like and you have like. People disagreeing with you or like saying like mean things and stuff, like that can be a hit to your mental health. Definitely. So I see it that way too, but I mean, like.
2: It's just finding also... the balance. <laughs> it's hard.
0: I think finding the balance yeah. and then, and then just, you know, coming from, from again, like my experience of being an indigenous person and wanting our sovereignty and wanting our mm-hmm. rights. I'm like, well, y'all are on stolen land. The way that you're accessing art and all of these things, it's, it's done because of so much genocide of indigenous people. And so that's also like in, in my mind too, you know, I think a lot about like Riot Girl, and I think about how like feminism was like talked about and like was such a huge part of, of that music. But like being that political, there's no way to, to do that without being able to acknowledge indigenous people and indigenous land. And so absolutely, I think there's a lot of people that just need to need to step back and need, need to think about like. How can we proceed with our music community that we're a part of and include, you know, indigenous people, black people, and all, all of these marginalized identities? I don't know. it's it's something that is on my mind a
2: lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just like fundamentally, it would just be great for everyone to dig mm-hmm. a little deeper in in their awareness about society, how music, intersects with culture and how the land that we're on how the history affects everything and how the history is important and yeah I just I think that we can be better yeah and I think we can we can be deeper
0: yeah I think sometimes I I, I hit a wall with that though because I'm I'm just like well, why haven't people been doing this already yeah. like why you know sometimes I'm like I don't understand I don't but that's just me trying to figure out, like, just life in general, I think.
2: Definitely. Well, that's why we're going to make our angry punky EP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because anger is powerful too. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, this is actually just all an ad for our um, angry punky EP <laughs> to raise <laughs> proceeds for Wetsuitan. So cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks, KP. Cool. Thanks, Sasami. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
1: Catherine Paul, Sasami Ashworth, thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. Big thanks to our special guest host, Leticia Tamko, a.k.a. Vagabond. Listeners, make sure to check out KP's essay for the TalkHouse, Radical Indigenous Queer Feminism is Ceremony. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast featuring Vagabond in conversation with Julie Byrne and Frankie Cosmos. While you're there, check out our events tab. We have some very cool Instagram live talks coming up. Back when people could go to studios, Eric Renniker recorded Sasami at Bedrock LA. KP recorded herself as did Leticia and I. Our producer is Mark Shizumi. The Talkhouse podcast theme was composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, Amelia Einhorn. Peace.